Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Well, yesterday came the shocking, horrible, tragic, heartbreaking news of the death of one of my oldest friends, PJ O'Rourke, who um, apparently uh, got sick around uh, Christmas time, and uh, then everything sort of went south on uh, for him on 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 Monday, and he um, and he he passed away at the age of seventy four. Um, I have a an appreciation of his life uh, in the New York Post. I think it's just worth, uh, aside from the the personal loss, which is which is really uh, dramatic. Um, PJ was, among many other things, maybe the nicest person I've ever known. Um, a man of sort of almost infinite uh, kindness, well-meaning, even though he was such a such a take no prisoners i wouldn't say savage but unsentimental tough-minded person in his uh political evaluations and his understanding of the um corruption of institutions and the problems of the uh, of american elites and world elites uh, generally um but personally he was just just unbelievably nice, generous, um, generous to writers, generous to young people coming up, generous to uh, friends. Um, I tell a story in my in my piece about how um, I was at his house on uh, a couple of weeks after the Berlin Wall fell and expressed some sorrow that I hadn't been there to see it happen. And he just handed me a piece of the wall that he had a little sh- a shard of the wall that he had pickaxed. Um, gave it to me in a box of mints, uh, a tin box of mints. Um, and, uh, you know, we weren't like the closest of friends, uh, then or, or later, but, um, we liked each other. And so he just made this, you know, unbelievably generous gesture out of nothing. Um, that was the kind of person he was. And of course, then we can get to talking about his achievements as a, as a writer, as a journalist, um, Aside from the fact that he sort of redefined American conservatism in some ways in the 1980s by bringing to it a certain kind of snazzy, almost countercultural uh, energy um, of the sort that he had uh, learned himself and helped to sort of foment in America uh, in the pages of the humor magazine National Lampoon in the 1970s, where he rose to be uh, its its editor and then became a columnist for Rolling Stone, a writer for Harper's, all, all these other places where he kind of adopted and adapted the styles of Hunter Thompson and others, uh, but brought to it this very middle American sensibility uh, in service of uh, anti-leftist ideas and ideology, I would say. He wasn't, he was more libertarian than he was conservative, but he he hated anti-Americanism. He disliked um you know uh the idea that elites knew uh better than uh, ordinary people how to live their lives and um and and that was sort of the focus of his of his work and uh you know in his massively best-selling book 
Parliament of Horrors, this um, uh, sort of comic study of Congress that came out in 1991, he really did kind of redefine uh, what it meant to be a Washington journalist because uh, he was not partaking in any way, shape, or form of the standard back-scratching ways in which Washington journalists, you know, talk about the niceties and who's good and who's bad, you know, who does their working hard for the American people. His general view was that Congress was a, was a, was a world of, um, of, of, of self-dealing, uh, uh, vainglorious, uh, fools and whores basically. And he brought this sensibility that really did inform a lot of the um, anti-establishment views of the right uh, in the 90s and after, which was a kind of new thing for the right, which of course was mostly supportive of institutions, not uh, not uh, dismissive of them. Christine, you worked, as I did with PJ, on, a, on a, a, a peculiar publication that he edited over the last couple of years called American Consequences, which was kind of an online magazine uh, published by a research firm in Baltimore, what was your experience with him? He's the thing he was, especially in person. I, over the years, probably had, you know, a handful of dinners and uh, was lucky enough to be seated next to him at some of them over the years and at conferences and panels, you know, afterwards, he was so much fun. He was just so much fun. And he brought that sense of kind of, uh, it's a kind of joy, but, but, and it's not cynicism. I think a lot of people look at his work and they think, oh, he was cynical and grumpy. No, he, he, he was so much fun. He took so much pleasure in it and pleasure in puncturing ego. And there's no place with more ego than Washington, DC. And he just had this ability to, to see right at the core of a lot of these people to mock them sometimes gently. Sometimes I would call him savage on some of his better pieces, but parliament of horrors is the book. I, I agree, John. It's like, it's a classic. And for, for, a lot of people in my generation, it was the first realization that a conservative-ish, libertarian-ish writer could be entertaining and just just kind of played in the liberal uh, cultural sphere, along with all these other people who we were told we were always supposed to listen to, but had different ideas. He was such an original thinker. As an editor, he was hilarious because he couldn't resist responding. When you turn something in, he would just like, his email and response would just be full of little hilarious, you know, and witty remarks and asides. And he was just fun. He was a really fun person to, to be around. Um, and he was kind. He was, as you said, John, he was especially kind to people who were so-called nobodies. He never lost uh, a sense of humility as a writer. And he always passed along as, as an example, how to be as a writer. And so I, I really do miss that. And I think for a lot of younger journalists these days who see themselves as some sort of vanguard of, you know, moral fortitude and telling us all how to behave and what to do. He is the antidote to that. And there are far too few uh, folks like PJ. He'll be deeply, deeply missed. Um, you know, one interesting thing about PJ is you, you think of him, people think of him as a, um, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a comic genius. And in some ways he was a comic genius long before he started writing uh, political materials when he worked at, at National Lampoon, which was, you know, the hottest comedy magazine uh, America had ever seen and was a real cultural phenomenon in the 1970s that gave birth to Saturday Night Live and then the entire two generations of comedy movies that followed with National Lampoon's Animal House um, in 1978. PJ, as the editor of the magazine, shepherded two 
remarkably brilliant works into print that were not either National Lampoon or a National Lampoon movie. One was the high school yearbook parody, and the other was the Sunday newspaper parody. And these were mimetically exact duplications of the 1960s cultural artifacts, the high school yearbook and this the Dacron Republican, uh, the Dacron Democrat Republican uh, uh, from Ohio, the Sunday newspaper. There not a thing in these documents, which you can look at and see online, uh, was not mimetically perfect. Uh, they looked exactly like high school yearbooks and and Sunday small town newspapers. Um, every inch of newsprint was covered with a parodic thing, fake ads, fake photos, fake filler, fake everything. Uh, these were, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, the, the greatest works of parody ever produced in the United States. And they were really his work. And they were that was before he became PJ O'Rourke. That was him as a you know young man in his uh, 20s and 30s. Uh, herding cats at this, you know, drug-addled um, lunatic asylum that was that was National Lampoon, and it, it, these were just extraordinary achievements. Um, Abe, got I think, yeah, I, it's funny in in your mentioning that. I think perhaps because the comedy came first, the the comedic writing first, um, that sort of accounts for the way he approached politics, which, as Christine says, we need more of now, which is that he had this sort of healthy understanding of the of the role of politics uh, in your life, even even if you are someone who is sort of consumed with commenting on it. So the the humor could be, um, as Christine said, have some humility to it and um, it, it could be savage but not in the way that sort of uh, biting common commentators today write about their enemies. There was there was the the the, the sort of the levity that sort of ran throughout it that was spoke to a very healthy understanding of sort of what it means to talk about politics with other citizens, and that is just so completely absent across the board today. So. Um, it's a, it's a terrible loss. My heart goes out to his wife, uh, Tina, his three kids, um, uh, who are too young to have lost a, a father and we're too young. He was too young to go and we were, we will be bereft without him. This is the second, uh, you know, death of a, of a, of a friend, a commentary contributor, a writer, a, a voice on the right in, you know, in the last six weeks, we lost Terry teach out, um, uh, at the beginning of January, and um, uh, these are, you know, the, this means I've now written, you know, I've had to write two obituaries for two close friends and colleagues, um, uh, and I'm, I'm only 60. Um, this just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Uh, I just, I, I want to point out to uh, listeners who may be newer that uh, PJ did a podcast with us, uh, December in 2020. When was it? Yeah, December 8th, December 2020. 20. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they can go talking can about go his his article and in commentary on the the Kennedy legacy. That's right. Yeah, Shamalot. Uh, it was called, and it began. You know, um, ask not what 
your country, you know, uh, what, uh, what was the first sentence? It was really a remarkable. It was like, ask not what ask you not, can do for your country. Ask what the ask Kennedy, Kennedy's, ever, ask, Kennedy's <laughs> ever did for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ask what the Kennedy's <laughs> ever did for you. Um, you know, he grew up in Toledo, Ohio. And um, uh, like Terry grew up in Sykeston, uh, Missouri. And these were both, uh, not that Toledo is a small town, um, but these, you know, these were both uh, men of the middle. And uh, they were people who, uh, never broke with the uh, idea that uh, where they came from, uh, who they were, and where they emerged from, these were good places, not bad places, as the counterculture and the and the and the elite culture of the you know of our of our time would have had it. Um, they weren't you know benighted uh, horror shows of, uh, of 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 injustice and monstrosity, but were. Uh, places of uh, common sense and, you know, uh, everyday life and everyday values that were uh, under assault from a new class and a new elite. And that was really where PJ came at things. Terry less heavily, let's say, or or more, you know, Terry was much more um, a creature of of, uh, you know, a, a refugee, you know, who came from there to come to New York to sample all of the pleasures of being, uh, you know, an esthete, uh, theater, opera, ballet, literature, the sorts of things that you could really only, not literature really, but you could only partake of in a, you know, in a big city uh, and, and, and drink deep from their well. But, you know, PJ, who uh, lived part-time in, in Washington, uh, his his main home was in New Hampshire. Uh, he, you know, he never really became a. He lived in New York. He lived in Hollywood. He was one of the people, by the way, when I was very young and was thinking about changing careers and going into television. You know, he told me this story about how he went and he spent four years trying to write for movies. He ended up with one credit. He has one credit. He is a credited screenwriter on the Rodney Dangerfield movie Easy Money with Joe Pesci. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but, you know, he wrote, he said he made a million dollars a year, uh, writing screenplays that no one ever produced or doing punch-up jobs on movies that no one ever saw and that it was incredibly lucrative and it was soul killing and that he strongly <laughs> advised me against following in his footsteps. Um, and you know, what he did was he, he, that was when he left there, he stopped doing that and started doing the political journalism that made him uh you know legendary and a brand name um of his own so um uh we will we will miss him uh and you know for um for a lot of people uh who are you know uh, friends of this podcast and friends of commentary um andy ferguson nick eberstadt um a whole bunch of other people pj was a very very dear and very close friend and um and uh his loss is um is 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 very hard it's a very hard thing um pj would enjoy however the ironies the manifold ironies of the stories that we're about to start uh indulging you know sort of de delving into on today's podcast i would say knowing him he would be extraordinary extraordinarily pleased this morning by the outcome of this uh, school board election in San Francisco, um, which uh, which is really a very startling event and a very important event because it represents the first electoral moment in which a deep 
blue, the deepest of deep blue places, San Francisco, a place where there are more dogs than there are children, where a voter's revolt has, in fact, done what happened in the very purple Virginia, right? Anybody want to sort of go through what what happened last night? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) It was a recall election, not like a a regular election. Um, There was um, a recall organized in early 2021 over the uh, San Francisco school, ostensibly over the San Francisco school board's social justice initiatives. That was really what was the driving force behind it. But the background radiation animating all of this, this backlash and the movement across the country, the parents movement across the country were school closures, school closures, particularly school closures after um, teachers muscled their way to the front of the line to get vaccines and then somehow found new rationales of ever, ever evolving rationales for keeping schools closed. And um, the vote came in yesterday and it was a, a tremendous bloodbath. It was seven, uh, 70%, over 70%, depending on the candidate, three candidates, um, uh, some 73, 75, 78, what have you against uh, keeping them in office. And they were all summarily recalled. Um, and the issue set that was raised is obviously the um, social justice initiatives, namely the renaming of, quote, injustice linked schools, uh, a school that was named for Abraham Lincoln. You know, that's a complicated legacy, Abraham Lincoln. So we should rename it for, I don't know, Marcus Garvey, who knows? Uh, and also the, the school closures. And the thing about that that strikes me is that the San Francisco Board of Education dropped its plan to rename Injustice Link schools in April of 2021 after a nationwide outcry rendered the whole school district a laughingstock. Likewise, they reopened to great fanfare for in-person education in August of 2021. And nevertheless, more than half a year later, the retribution came. Which now, is sort we, of, in, my, in my view, which also, because there's this idea abroad that all this stuff is going to fade. The virus is going to go away. The economy is going to boom and voters aren't going to remember any of the discomforts they experienced over the last 18 months. And there's very little evidence to support that. You're missing one key yeah, element the, of the of the go ahead, Christine. The uh, the uh, admissions only high school, uh, the competitive high schools testing being dropped. And yes, you know, that equity is still ongoing. Yeah. True. Right. And um, but that actually brought out for this recall election a lot of Asian American voters who were who turned out in very high numbers because they were upset about the the transformation of the uh, that particular part of the yeah. There's a school called Lowell and it is apparently like Thomas Jefferson in Arlington or the Bronx High School of Science or Brooklyn Tech in New York. It was a, te- a testing school um that was obviously uh, a place where uh you know, uh, poor and minority students who were academically inclined, this was their shot at using the public school system uh, to lever it, to get a better high school education and to get go on to college. Evidently, the, the numbers in, in San Francisco are pretty stark. And this is very interesting because, again, it all it, it, the question is what it portends, not just what just happened. So uh, Asians make up about 30 percent of the population of San Francisco Traditionally, in local elections, they have voted in much lesser numbers than their than their overall numbers, like 16, 17, 18 percent. They turned out at greater numbers than their population in this recall election. Um, they were the driving force behind the margins here, the 70 percent, 75 percent margins against these school board members. Um, and the question, of course, is, was this is this a one time event in which they have risen up to say, you better not do this? And the School board members who have been recalled, they will be replaced by Mayor London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, 
who has said, I've heard your message loud and clear, you want schooling that works. Um, should she not leave the Lowell School alone or restore its you know, uh, testing system or whatever, or not heed the call of uh, hear the real meaning of this election, not just pay lip service, but do something about it. It's the sleeping giant. This is this is everything that we've been talking about about you know the last uh, six to twelve months is a sleeping giant in the form of parents uh, and people who are you know who are looking at what is being done uh, in in schools, uh, which of course represent the future of America. Are they going to go back to sleep once the pandemic is over and people go back to school and all of that, or? Have has their political consciousness been raised? Are we in a new era? And we don't know the answer to that. There is every reason to think uh, that we are. Um, we need more data. We need more elections. But you know, we have an election in Virginia. We've had school board elections all over the country in all kinds of places, and we now have San Francisco recalling leftist school board members who used one of them you know they uncovered tweets of hers that said things like asian americans are essentially like you know the slaves who worked in the house uh for the for the master you know they are like they are like the capos you know the asian americans are are siding with you know the white man or something like that well this one interesting thing to look at both in this in this case in San Francisco, but also going forward when we see more of this happening and analyzing it, is that it's not what we're seeing on the left is, ah, it's the culture war. We have to, and there's another piece in Politico today talking about how, oh, Democrats have to stop talking about the culture war the way they're talking about it. This isn't about the culture war. The the San Francisco, the leftists in San Francisco all agree on a lot of this cultural stuff. In fact, one of the women who spearheaded this recall effort said, look, if you want to rename on the school, all the schools, that's fine. But make sure the kids in the schools know how to read. This is a governance issue. And so this is the party of governance being held to their own standards because they failed miserably in, in actually doing the basics of their job. This is, and the, the interview that one of these uh, the folks who spearheaded the successful recall gave to Politico, they said, look, Imagine there's an earthquake, you're out on the street wandering around, you don't know what's happening, and a city official comes up to you and says, we're going to change a street sign, we're going to rename that street sign, and then leaves. And you're like, what? That's how they feel. And this is not a culture war issue. This is not necessarily a left and right issue. This is a sheer incompetence issue. And you're going to see that at a lot at the local level in a lot of these elections. I got to say, you've introduced this internal poll, and I think you're glossing over a little bit of the implications of it, because maybe left wing cultural issues aren't as resonant in San Francisco, the most culturally liberal place in the country, but they sure are literally everywhere else. Um, you're talking about a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee internal poll that uh, the results of which were published in Politico, and the details are positively seismic. Um, the essential the the essential uptick here is that the GOP's lead on the generic ballot explodes from a four point you know just base point baseline in this general environment to 14 points in Democrats favor when the Republican Party is when the Republican messaging around Democratic cultural issues are presented to voters. So, for example, you met you said it it moves 14 points in the Republican to 14 points, a 14 in the Republican's favor 
in the Republican a Republican advantage. You you said Democrats. That's why I'm a correct. Four point you advantage just, for the Republicans to a fourteen point advantage for Republicans right. when they're confronted with Democratic messaging, progressive messaging, we should say, on issues like immigration, open borders, and amnesty, and defund the police. Now that lead retreats from 14 points in the Republicans' favor to only six points in the Republicans' favor when voters are confronted with a Democratic canned response to these uh, Republican talking points. Um, you know, that's just whistling past the graveyard. You're talking about a sterilizing the landscape effect, uh, just cleansing the, the horizon of Democratic politicians to, you know, only an incredible wave, the likes of which we haven't seen since 2010 if they manage to get their message out, which is you know, unclear as even what that message might be. You know, for context, in 2014, when Republicans took nine Senate seats, they had a two-point generic advantage. Polling, obviously, was a little off in that race. But nevertheless, it doesn't take a whole lot of Republican advantage in the generic ballot to realize a fantastic advantage at the polls. And the, the, up, the upshot of this internal um, polling is essentially that voters believe Democrats are quote, preachy, judgmental, and focused on culture wars. And you know what? They're right. Democrats are preachy, judgmental, and focused on culture wars. They well, spent the, the last year is... convincing themselves that all their cultural combat wasn't cultural combat at all. It was just <laughs> getting right with history. Who, I, could, be, I who think, could be against that? I think it's a mistake to uncouple the good governance question from the social justice question. I think it's actually all part of the same yeah. issue. They're they're the worse the the handling of the governance is, and by the way, that goes for the, the uh, financial disarray of of the of the San Francisco district as well. Um, the the more outraged people get about the social justice activism, we I we, mean, we, I, we see that on the national level too. I mean, I think they're linked also because um, it, it is it is axiomatic: ordinary people, liberals, George Packer people who don't like what's going on in their schools. This is what I would say just to be bleak about it, but not bleak in my own terms, in their terms. They think that you can uncouple the competence issues from the culture war issues, but you can't because the culture war issues directly affect the competence issues. If you are going to stress that Abraham Lincoln is a bad person, you are going to teach reading badly. You are going to teach history wrong. You are going to inflect everything in the wrong direction. If you are going to focus on race, you are going to screw up mathematics education because you're going to start trying to teach math something that is racially blind through the prism of race. And all of that then gets to minimal competence. Now, the problem is, as I say, you can say, just teach the kids how to read. But it matters what you teach them. It matters what the documents are that they're reading when you teach them how to read. Because if what you're teaching them is lies and propaganda uh, that is dumbed down to help them suck in the ideological meaning that they're going to get, they're not going to learn to read well. And the teachers who want to do that don't want to teach them how to read. What they want to do is brainwash them. They don't want to teach them how to do math. They want to brainwash them. They don't want to teach them science. They want to brainwash them. And you can't have, you know, you got to have one. You got to have one or the other. It's not just if you want to, just to add to that, and if you want to go around tearing down plaques and painting over murals with other murals, you're going to misallocate resources that are that are that are badly needed elsewhere, in, including staff and funds. And it's well, not and just the, education. It's no. Christine, you, 
Sure. Christine, go ahead. I was just going to respond to what, um, to what Noah's point about what the DCC internal memo said, because their, their ideas for fixing this problem are hilarious. One of the things that, that, the, that the consultants who met with them said is, you know, we, we have a solution to this. So what we need to do is, is not ignore the attacks. We need to, when faced with, so for example, a defund the police attack, they said the presenters encourage Democrats to reiterate their support for the police. When people say that they, they are, Democrats are for open borders, talk about their efforts to keep the border safe, but they can't do that because a good, a very large and loud contingent of their party actually does want to defund the police. Cory Bush just doubled down on that very phrase, and they do want open borders. Just ask Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So the idea that they can fix this by simply doing basic political lying is not going to fly this time. And they, well, there even is that the poll. Oh. Real, even that poll demonstrates that they don't even understand what culture warring is. They don't see their own culture warring. They don't recognize equity initiatives as culture warring, as uh, uh, distributing, uh, you know. Uh, vaccines, for example, based on racial makeup or um, or uh, mitigation measures or protocols uh, uh, as treatments, what have you, on racial makeup. That is culture warring. They don't see that as they see that as good governance. They don't see Joe Biden's sex and gender politics and rolling back Title IX guidelines as culture warring because it's just getting right with history and just, uh, you know, ensuring that the the, the white uh, you know, patriarchy that we inherited in English common law, it, which Joe Biden said during the campaign was anathema, needs to be re you know, redistributed. Speech policing is culture warring. It's everywhere. And they don't see it because they don't see it as culture warring. So they can't fix it. Or they see it as culture warring, but they're for it. Like that's, you know, they're and what they, what, and so, and so, so what and they, COVID generally has become a cultural issue. Right. And they can't. Right. But let, but let me, let me go to the sort of like the examples that they love to what about, or, you know, both sides like the issue, the Tennessee school board that, that took a mouse out of the library or off the curriculum, the, the graphic novel about the Holocaust. So this is an interesting case because, of course, it's about the Holocaust. So it's like, oh, you're taking it out. This is anti-Semitic. You're not going to let kids learn about the Holocaust. I have grave problems with the idea that the best way to teach kids about the Holocaust is to give them a comic book, even if it won the Pulitzer Prize. I think Mouse is a, a belittling work and, a, and, a, uh, and, a, and something that I, I take grave offense at. But I, look, I've lost that argument uh, over the last 30 years. Mouse is, you know, considered a watermark high watermark a way of communicating in an important way an autobiographical work by art spiegelman blah 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 fine so i lost that right doesn't matter because that's actually a serious argument that you know no longer sort of like holds sway however what what do they say when you have a fight about this at the school board level and you're not just filtering it through the characterizations by liberals who are horrified by the idea that you don't want kids to read mouse in high school what are these what does the school board say about mouse? It has a it has pictures of naked women in it. It has drawings of naked women. Now, these are drawings of naked women. They are naked women, you know, in camps. It's horrifying. So on the one hand, it's a depiction of nudity, which if you ask a lot of parents in America whether they want schools to be retailing even you know drawings of nude women for an eight-year-old for an eighth grader or seventh grader they might say no i really don't want you to do that and whether or not that is considered hidebound or retrogressive or something like that by by you know blue, blue state elites that doesn't mean that that attitude or that idea is dismissible that's what it means to live 
in communities that have local control of things. That's number one. Number two is, do you want depictions of the human physical body in 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 conditions of extreme horror? Yes, that conveys something about the unspeakable nature of the Holocaust. It's also an unbelievably graphically disturbing image that I'm not sure that a seventh or eighth grader needs to be exposed to as yet. Mouse wasn't drawn for kids. It was drawn as an adult, as a, as a, as a work for adults. And, um, but you can't get any of that nuance when uh, Democrats, liberals are desperate to find examples where they can say, oh, yeah, you think we're bad on the culture war? Well, look at you book banning the way you're book banning. How dare you, right? And the problem is that take this to the electorate, take this to the people, and they're not going to be on the side of, you know, of the, this is a terrible thing. They might say, yeah, well, all things being equal, maybe they should be older before they see that, or they should be more prepared when they see that. For some reason, there's all kinds of things that are deemed unsafe that we don't think are unsafe. The left is given the power to, to deem things that are anodyne unsafe in order to kill them off. You have something that was highly controversial upon its first release, which was Mouse, which was a highly controversial document and very upsetting to many in the sort of Holocaust survivor community and stuff like that. That, however, is now, you know, like washed clean as the, as, as the driven snow. But, you know, let anybody have a conversation about affirmative action. That's unsafe. And I, I just don't think that when you come down to it and you talk to ordinary people at an ordinary level about what is going on in the culture, um, they are increasingly alienated from the arguments that are being made by the left, That's which are anti-free speech, not pro-free speech, even if you want to start saying, oh, it's terrible that they're taking Mouse out of the library or whatever the hell it is they're doing with Mouse, which I don't even really understand. Um, I think there's another important implication of all this, which is that when you see uh, results like, like we have in San Francisco, like we did in Virginia, um, it means that the, all the cute little cover stories about how what we think are happening uh, in, in social justice activism, all, all the, the whole PR job that's been ongoing uh, from the media about how, oh, critical race theory is just teaching history. That's all it's doing. And then the response is just Republicans pouncing. Um, that's all failing. Uh, the people who are affected by this know exactly what it is. Uh, and the media at some point is going to have to respond to the fact that what they're saying is completely disconnected to what's happening in people's lives. And they're not believing and they're not believing it. There's also an element of local control here. Right. I mean, if we were to look at the San Francisco school board and say they're revolting against drag times, drag queen story hour or masking in schools, you'd be you'd be incorrect. You're just missing the boat there, just like, you know, this one little teeny weeny town in, in Tennessee or wherever it is has a particular uh, objection to this one item, you know, that's then you're, you were to, you'd be, you'd be incorrect in at judging this as a, some sort of a national moment. So you do really need to narrow your focus there. Well, look, I mean, the point is that there's a continuum on which everything, you know, if you, if you take a, a extreme libertarian position on something like mouse or drag queen story or something like that, 
Um, at some point, you then lose the ability. And this is going to sound like a weird thing to say to say, well, well, why shouldn't kids watch hardcore porn in schools? Like, that's speech that's protected. You know, why can't they do that? Like, and then you can show, you can explain to them why it's bad or why this isn't the way you should depict relationships or, or, or something like that. Like, um, the, the idea that, um, what you need is a uniform standard for everything. Right. I mean, well, our standard is, is, is free speech. We do not believe in free speech in schools. We do not believe in, total civil liberties when it comes to young people we don't grant civil total civil liberties when it comes to the lives of of minors in the united states we guide their educations we guide what they see we have all sorts of voluntary restrictions in the form of mpaa ratings systems and we have we have imposed curriculum curricula all over the country where we try to guide what it is that they are supposed to read uh the point here is that um uh, the the left seems to believe that they are in control and in charge of determining where these boundaries are. And one of the things that has happened over the last couple of years is that people who either have felt powerless or they're not interested or they have other things to deal with or something like that um, are learning more and more about what they are up to and are saying no. And the interesting thing about the way they're saying no is that they say no it's the first time a lot of these people have heard no and then they say well you're a, you're a, you're a terrorist you're a fascist for saying no he's saying you don't want me to teach this way well you're obviously a terrorist coming to a school board meeting and objecting to the way we're teaching something you're 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 a terrorist and that then creates a whole new set of realities in the secondary market which is Oh, so you're doing things, you're challenged, and your way of arguing your way out of the point is to defame, insult, and slander the people who have a different view from you. Guess what that's going to do to them. Is it going to frighten them or is it going to empower them? Is it going to make them evangelists for the view they hold or is it going to shut them up and make them go home? And I think in a lot of places, particularly places that are uniquely susceptible to racial messaging like ultra liberal communities and blue states uh that kind of thing does work to silence people who don't really have a way of saying i, I don't care whether you tell me that it's important that blah 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 happens i don't want my kid reading that i don't want my kid being told that abraham lincoln is bad sorry Mouth off all you want. Write 1619 projects till the cows come home. You're not going to go tell my kid that the <clears throat> greatest president and one of the greatest leaders the world has ever produced is a bad guy. You're going to do that? I'm going to kick you out of your job. It's going to take a while. You don't think it's going to happen because no one's ever tried this before. But now what happened in San Francisco means, just as all these things, people are going to be giving second thoughts to these mass movements to rewrite American history to please a tiny group of people who hate this country and are trying to use the levers of power to create a new narrative about how awful America is and how awful the systems that have been put in place to try to help people of lesser means compete and survive and thrive and, 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 and have a chance to make a better life for themselves 
that your efforts to deny them that right because you don't like the way the outcomes come out, we're going to make you lose your job if you keep doing that. We're going to organize and make you lose your job because well, you're not going to do this to our kids. And the, and the tension the Democrats are facing now because of the way the progressive messaging and the progressive base has captured a lot of the party is that although they want to they might try to pass policies that will help people who are you know who don't make as much money who are trying to find opportunities those are the people who should naturally be their voters they assume they're naturally their voters and they're always shocked when they when you know first generation hispanic uh, immigrants to this country don't vote for them or the asian americans aren't just you know getting on board it's because there's now an ideological litmus test that that is supposed to uh, be layered over that class distinction and the people who are told they have to believe these things like that they have to call themselves latinx and say a man and address as a woman don't believe it and they won't they won't abide by it and so they are going to vote elsewhere now it's not clear the republicans are an easy and permanent alternative for them but that is i think that ideological capture of the class rhetoric that used to help Democrats with working class folks is not it's not working. Right. I just want to make one last point about this. For all this talk on the left, you know, the death of democracy, democracy's dying before our very eyes. Things like this, these elections, this is democracy thriving. It is people seeing in their leaders and representatives things they don't like and going out voting and changing and the left hates. Oh, we should, we, I know you want to get to our ad read, but we should really dive into that briefly. Okay, I would no, no, don't, don't. Well, let's dive into it after the ad sure. read. Okay, because we have a, we all have a lot of things to say about this, and uh, but you know, uh, you should do if you're going to say a lot of interesting things, you should do it from the comfort of a really great super powered luxury powered super super uh, office chair like the X chair. When I sat in the X chair for the first time, I said, "This is what an office chair is supposed to feel like." Look, can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? The X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? The X chair can. You know how you get that? With the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X chair. And it's got that dynamic variable lumbar, the support on your back, your lower back that will make you not happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. That's what you get from the X chair. Try it for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. That's xchaircommentary.com. And let's talk about this week's new advertiser battle box. How are you going to find a new piece of uh, outdoor gear? That's going to be your new favorite battle box. If you sign up for it, that piece of outdoor gear will find you. It's your go-to monthly subscription for hand-picked outdoor survival and everyday carry gear, getting the best gear for yourself not only takes time, but can be incredibly expensive. That's why BattleBox brings you name-brand, high-quality products every month at half the price of what they cost on their own. Just pick the box that works for you, get tested and vetted products you can trust, selected by an expert team of outdoor professionals, from an Aquapod emergency water kit to an Atomic Bear survival bivy. We had a whole question here about what i was saying the other day and that people thought i was saying an atomic bear survival baby and i was not bivy is a kind of tent for those of you jews out there who don't do a lot of outdoorsing atomic bear survival bivy that's the kind of thing you can get from battle box delivered right to your doorstep because i saw atomic bear survival baby at asbury park in 1998 
They kicked butt. <laughs> Who did they open for? Did they open for BattleBox? Because it shipped over 1 million boxes since 2015 and has been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Survivor's Edge. Find out why outdoor enthusiasts call BattleBox the best gear I never knew I wanted. Sign up, receive, survive. What are you waiting for? Don't miss another BattleBox mission. BattleBox is spelled B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X. And if you act now from until, until March 31st, get a free mystery box worth $115 plus with any new subscription at trybattlebox.com slash commentary. That's T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X.com slash commentary for that free mystery box worth $115 plus right now. T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X.com slash commentary. Okay, Noah. Yeah, so go the, to it. The spin on the like the notion here that the democracy is at work and isn't it beautiful? Uh, the spin to, to keep the troops in line and to keep everybody from from freaking out is twofold. One, there was a lot of money in this race. You know, there were billionaires who were invested in the outcome of a school board election in San Francisco, as though that's somehow untoward or renders it illegitimate. Nevertheless, that, but also. You know, a very low turnout race. 20% of the eligible electorate turned out for a school board race, which is, by the way, really high for a school board race, no matter what. But nevertheless, only 20% of the eligible voters turned out. So that's good for us, right? I don't see how. I mean, the notion here that they're trying to peddle is, look, all the voters who would otherwise be inclined to turn out for us didn't even show up. Isn't that good? How is that good? So the notion here that this is some sort of an exercise in democracy is is always going to be thwarted by the motivated reasoning that allows you to say, okay, well, there was there were other interested parties involved in this, and those interested parties are somehow illegitimate and undemocratic in their own rights. And therefore, you know, we shouldn't take too much away from from these results. Everywhere that this is happening, by the way, is there's some sort of excuse for it. In my neck of the woods, there was a do-over from the November 2021 elections in Maywood, Democratic town. Democratic voters outnumber Republican voters two to one, Democratic mayor, unified Democratic council. They've lost two seats there, one only yesterday as a result of, you know, just general a general response to the environment. It's not like there was social justice initiatives being you know exercised in Maywood, New Jersey. They weren't trying to rename high schools. It's just the general environment. And the general environment is so anti-democratic right now that it's manifesting in the exact same way everywhere. When people don't like election results, they have a bizarre facility with the idea that the election results are illegitimate. And that's not just Donald Trump complaining about 2020 and saying that they were stolen. In 2014, when the Democrats lost nine seats in the Senate, Barack Obama said only the turnout was 33%. It doesn't count right? It doesn't count. And Democrats then lost the presidency in 2016. And what did they say? The Russians did it. Facebook ads brainwashed people through Cambridge Analytica magic to believe untruths like Jim Comey reopening the Hillary Clinton investigation, which is a real thing that happened to help Donald Trump win the election. And they spent four years saying Trump was a Russian puppet. Putin did it. Nothing. This is this was wrong. You know, don't think that anything that this election matters or it means anything because the election itself was illegitimate and we don't have to look and try to figure out what we are being told about what happened 
for example, in the fact that Ohio went entirely red when Obama had won it twice. How did that happen? What happened between 2012 and 2016 to turn turn Ohio red to make it an eight-point Republican state when Obama had won it twice? Gee, was it the aftermath of the financial meltdown and the fentanyl uh, and opioid crisis and the continuing collapse of the middle class to which Demo- about which Democrats had nothing to say except we're going to drive new industries like fracking and others out of business and make it harder for you to get guns and make it harder for you to live an ordinary life uh, while you cling to your guns and religion and you're deplorable. The inability of people, and this is a this is a common human error, right? To say, I don't like what the facts are telling me, so I'm going to believe something else, and then I'm going to get hit by a two by four over and over again. And that is what is happening to Democrats right now. What is the key about that DCCC internal poll? It says. Stop talking about things that drive people crazy and that cause 13-point shifts in votes in New Jersey and in Virginia. You idiots. It's staring you right in the face. So we're going to go do survey data to tell you what your eyes should be able to tell you. You know, Governor Murphy of New Jersey didn't almost just lose his, uh, his second term in office to somebody nobody even knew his name because things are going in the going in a way in this country that make people happy stop talking about things that aren't interesting to people don't help people don't talk about people's lives stop doing it now one virtue of the DCC thing uh, Christine you're talking about Cory Bush and and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that is a message and the message is every man for himself that is Ordinarily, you know, which is what which is what the captain says when the ship is scuttled, right? Everybody's working together to try to save a ship. And when the ship is being scuttled, the idea is, okay, save yourself anyway. You know, we're no, I'm no longer giving you commands about where to go and how to go to the after the starboard or, you know, deal with the mizzen. Whatever you can do to save yourself, save yourself. And in 1990, when George H.W. Bush agreed to raise taxes and broke his no new taxes pledge. Newt Gingrich, then the leader of the minority party in the in the in the House, said, "Say whatever it is you have to say. You are no longer. We are not obligated if, if we are trying to save our seats to defend the president's action here. It's every man for himself. And it, this is February. And if the message to Democrats, particularly Democrats in the House, is get away from Biden." Get away from AOC, get away from Pelosi, get away from Schumer, do whatever you can to save yourself if you're going to run for office again. And guess what? According to Punchbowl this morning, 30, Kathleen Rice of New York, 30th Democrat to announce her retirement, largest number of retirements uh, by one party since 1992. And what happened before 1992? when Democrats retired, like 35 Democrats retired or something like that, there was a huge financial scandal. The check kiting scandal, people don't even know about this, but uh, there was something called the House Bank. Uh, Congressmen had their money uh, deposited in in the House Bank. And basically, uh, the House Bank, they could write checks 
however they wanted, and the House Bank would cover their overages with no fees. So in other words, and um, uh, Chuck Schumer ended up in the Congress because his boss, Steve Solars, kited $500,000 worth of checks. Like he was just writing checks to cover his expenses, and then he would get back and he would pay the House Bank back with no interest and no overages and nothing like that. It was the classic Washington scandal of using your power to get privileges and rights that you deny your your voters the people who are your employers and 40 democrats retired um in 92 it's happening now there's no scandal right there's no scandal here uh yeah so what does it mean in practice every every man for himself in the in the sense you're talking about in which the political environment is so toxic for the party in power that you have to do whatever you can. So whatever you can is, is positioning yourself against certain elements in the party that turn off voters. Um, Mitch McConnell did something very similar in 2016 when all the polling indicated that it was going to be a bloodbath for Republicans. And the message implicitly is go ahead and, and run us down if you need to, you know, to distance yourself from certain aspects of our coalition that are obviously distasteful. And we've seen something like that happen with Lyndon Breed. San Francisco mayor, whose position, who supported the the recall, who has somehow made herself into this avatar for for uh, opening schools and getting back to normal in the space of the last two weeks, um, and it it could work for her. I and mean, there's a couple of figures in the party uh, at the lo- more the local level and in Washington who are starting to differentiate themselves from the from the brand that Democrats have cultivated over the last year, which is really progressive social reformers. Um, Will and COVID ha- and, and and COVID and COVID hawkishness, and but, COVID hawkishness yeah. increasingly and COVID hawkishness. That's yeah. a new development. But generally, so now we're talking about two areas, two major dominant features of the political landscape that Democrats have to run away from their own party on. Is that going to work? I mean, you're running in two different directions here. It's but hard to know. But I mean, you go said ahead. there were, you said there was no scandal this time around, like there wasn't the, in the early 90s. But the scandal is just the facts on the ground about how what's going on in this country, economically, socially, right. culturally and with COVID. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. to say nothing of foreign policies. But I mean, everybody, everybody who had a everybody who had an account at the House Bank and kited a check retired. I mean, that basically because it was like, just like handing your rival an issue to say, Oh, you you were embezzling. Uh, it, it wasn't embezzling. It was just a it was a kind of weird thing. But the simple thing was to say, oh, so I guess you get to borrow money at no interest from from the public coffers and pay it back whenever you want to because money is meaningless to you. But I don't, and I'm you know like if I do that and I don't pay my mortgage, you know I get I get repossessed. But you can well, do whatever you want. It, it that, that's what I mean by. It's hypocrisy, right? I mean, in the hypocrisy. We, yeah, we but it was more about, than it, the whole point right. was. It was like, okay, time's Rules up. We can't. Me, we we just. Me. We can't. We we're, we're not. We're going to lose. Like we're going to lose because they have us dead to rights on 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 personal misbehavior and personal misconduct. That is not what's going on here. This is basically a revolt against democratic single party rule that that is leading and and the idea that you know inevitably republicans are probably going to take over anyway which means democrats are going to be in the minority in the house and you know what it's like to be in the minority in the house it's horrible you know what it's like to be in the minority in the senate it can be pretty fun like or you know who knows like who knows what you can block you can block all kind you can make all kinds of things not happen when you're in the senate in the house if you're in the minority you are powerless beyond powerless and they don't want to be again 
But there's also there is some hypocrisy here that I think actually is much more hard hitting for the average voter when they see it. The masking hypocrisy among Democratic leaders has been ongoing and horrifying and terrible and people get really annoyed, especially now. But there's also been a lot of hypocrisy with regard to crime, rising crime rates, the feelings of being unsafe in your own neighborhood. Meanwhile, the people who are screeching about defunding the police hire personal private security to protect themselves or live Mm -hmm. in areas where they have a gate in front of their house that keeps them safer than you can feel when you're trying to walk to the bus stop. So there are those little hypocrisies, those everyday quotidian hypocrisies do start to wear on people two plus years into this kind of weird, you know, COVID era that we're in. But this is actually an answer to Noah's question about like, what do you do if you're every man for yourself, right? Because um, it is a weird fact that Gavin Newsom's misbehavior at the Super Bowl could have a terrible effect on some Democrat in a swing district in Texas. He didn't do it. He didn't go unmasked at the Super Bowl and 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 then say he held his breath when he had his picture taken with Magic Johnson. That wasn't the Super Bowl, right? That was was that the no, Super that Bowl or that it was the was NFC? The LA, that was Garcetti. LA, okay. Yeah. I mean, okay, but whatever. I mean, so it could even be Garcetti. The whole idea is he didn't do it like your guy in in Texas or your guy in some whatever he he's been perfectly acceptable it is that he's going to get blamed for the personal misbehavior and behavior of 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 other politicians that's when that's when a tsunami is coming that's when the wave is coming to get everybody and where that means forget the house now for a second because we've all said oh who knows what's going to happen in the senate if these numbers hold if those dcc numbers hold Michigan, all over the country, Republicans running for office are going to beat Democrats. 14-point margin means that the no-name guy who ran against Phil Murphy in 2021 wins in 2022. I mean, he gets, he doesn't just get within, uh, was it a 13, you know, he doesn't just get 13 points up when Murphy won by 16. He'll get 20 points up and beat Murphy by four or some iteration of him, another governor, another senator, something like that. Republicans are 50-50. They think maybe they can get two seats. When we're in an atmosphere like this, if things don't right themselves or change change directions, these polling numbers, this stuff, if it's true, God only knows what the composition will be of the American uh, political class uh, come November 9th, uh, 2021. Uh, here's, here's where we should return to the wisdom of our dear friend PJ O'Rourke, who's, who said one of the best one of the best pieces of writing said Democrats are the party that says government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass on your lawn. The Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.